Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking primarily at verses 1 through 5 today. Anybody else have this really uncomfortable feeling when you have to clear your throat and there's other people around? I promise, I'm just clearing my throat and drinking some tea because I've been singing. Okay, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Let's read together this morning all the way through verse 11 because I believe that this entire chunk really needs to be at least heard together. Um, so, Let's read together. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yeah. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Whew, that's a beautiful passage. It was one of the first passages. For me, this passage is incredibly personal. It's one of the first passages I memorized uh, as a boy. Verses 1 through 11 here. Um, one of the first passages I memorized as a boy, and it was one of the first things that my leadership, my um, I guess at the time it would have been a youth pastor, but my youth pastor led me to do... Um, and it changed the way I approached people, period. And it was, it's beautiful. So, my prayer is that as we study this, these 11 verses together for the next whoever knows how many weeks, um, as we study these 11 verses together, that, that God would birth in us a Christ-likeness that is unparalleled in the world. That we would be become even more in line with who He is. So John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26, Jesus ends His high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. This, this prayer He prays for His disciples. And at the end of it there, in verses 20 through 26, He prays for you. He prays for those who will believe. And He... Praise specific things. He prays that you would be one, 
And remember, we talked about that two weeks ago, that you would have the same breath, breathing in and out the same thing, that, that you would be receiving your sustenance from the same place and breathing out your sustenance, that Jesus would be what you breathe in and breathe out as a body, and that you would be literally taking in the nature and character of God and then breathing that out together so that you would be of the same breath, that the world, and then his reasoning for that, that he says that, that they would be one as, as I and the Father are one, that they would be one. He, he says that, that the world would see and take note, that the world would see and believe. Then he prays that the glory of Christ is given to a believer. He explains that he has given us his glory. Remember, I just want to remind you what glory is. Glory is the accurate representation of something. So the glory of a frog, slimy, wet, croaks, and hops, right? The glory of a man is sinful. The glory of God is unfathomable. Majesty, righteousness, wrath, judgment, love, mercy, all bound up perfectly in holiness. So the glory of God is this perfection. And he says he's given the glory of Christ or the revelation of God to us. He's put, us in, he's put it inside of us. In the book of Colossians, this is called the mystery of Christ. Christ in you. The hope of glory. The hope of revelation of God. So we see this incredible picture that Christ has given his glory to us. The, and, and why? He says, why does he give us this glory? Jesus explains in John 17 that the, that the world would see that Jesus was sent and God lives. That Jesus was sent and God lives. And then he says, he prays for us that we would manifest the glory of Jesus in the world so the world would see and know, that they might see and know Jesus. So before we dive into Philippians 2, I wanted you to grasp Jesus' very prayer is that He would be manifested in your life and pour out. And in John 17, what Jesus prays for you is exactly what Paul is admonishing us to do in Philippians 1 and Philippians 2. Paul is laboring for the gospel with extreme joy. And he writes this incredibly pastoral letter to the people. Now he's in prison, so let's put ourselves kind of where he is just for a moment because the first verse here is really, we really need to connect with where he is. So he is in prison, and he's writing to people who care a great deal about them, about him, and he's saying, look, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm, I'm good. I've got the joy of the Lord in me. I know I'm in prison. I know that concerns you. I know you're worried. I'm okay. Indeed, this is a good thing. And he is reframing their worldview in this letter. Reframing it from a view of, oh no, we're being persecuted, things are going to go wrong for us, to a view of, no matter what happens, God is glorified. So he's reframing the entire thing for them, and he's calling us and them to gospel work. 
And he's calling us and them to what I would call joy-filled holiness. Joy-filled holiness. Not joyful holiness, joy-filled holiness. Holiness that is filled with joy. Not duty, not, not weight, not sluggishness, but joy-filled holiness. Joy-filled holiness. You might say happy holiness. Right. This, is, this is what Paul is calling them to. In the midst of his struggles, in the midst of his turmoils, in the midst of his, uh, his difficulties, in the midst of all the problems swirling around him in the world, he wants us to have a joy-filled holiness. So, got that? That's where Paul is. That's, that's the, the kind of motive of this letter, is that we would be filled with joy, we would, we would change our perspective from one of we're being persecuted to one of God's glory in all circumstances, that we would shift to think that way. So now we dive into verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Very pastoral. He says, if there's any of these things, any of these things at all. So let's, let's talk about what these are. First, Paul gave them encouragement. Right? He says, if there's any encouragement, if there's any encouragement in Christ, that Paul's writing to them going, if I have given you any encouragement in Jesus Christ, if you have any encouragement from me or from each other, if there's any encouragement, when you look at Paul's walk, is it encouraging to you? Yeah, right? I mean, it should be. When you look at what Paul is doing in this letter, is it encouraging to you? It should be. You should feel massively encouraged. Is there any encouragement here? And then he says, is there any comfort from love, this comfort coming from a verbal expression. The word comfort here implies a verbal expression. Like, has he done any comforting to you? Has there been any comfort in your life verbally in love or agape, agape love, this self-sacrificial love? Has there been any comfort from that verbal form of love? Love being that which costs you something. This agape love is the type that Christians, I argue that a, Christ, a Christian is the only person that can really show this kind of love. Everybody else requires something. But a Christian, and Christ, because of Christ in us, is, is the only person truly able to love with a completely selfless motive, I believe. This is a philosophical point. You could argue back and forth. Um, but I'm kind of with Augustine on that. That love is something unique to Christ. This kind of love is something unique to Christ, and it is only poured out in the heart and through the heart of believers. And though the world might look like they know it, they don't. So if there's any comfort in love, so Paul's saying, if I've ever encouraged you, if there's ever been any encouragement, and he says, if there's any, uh, if there's any, what's he say, participation in the Spirit, that word there is koinonia, if there's any koinonia or fellowship in the Spirit, if we are at all united in the Spirit, if there is anything that unites us together in the Spirit, this reminds me of Philippians, I mean Ephesians chapter uh, 4, when he says here in chapter 4, um, 
verses 4 through 6, he says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In other words, Paul says there, you are one. There is one unified body of Christ and you are part of it. So if there's any fellowship in the Spirit, if the Spirit has knit you together at all, any of it, if He's, if he's knit us together, if there's any fellowship, and then he says, if there's any affection or sympathy, I think affection or sympathy, some versions translate it affection or compassion. Any affection or sympathy, right? This, is, this affection in, indicates a deep, emotional investment. A deep emotional investment. So Paul, as a pastor to the people of Philippians, as a man who loves them and deeply cares about them, he is, he is deeply affectionate for them, so much so that he is praying for them constantly, he is broken for them, he weeps for them, he rejoices when they rejoice, he weeps when they weep. Epaphroditus comes and spends time with him, and he is so concerned for Epaphroditus' health and life that he sends him back home, and he is terrified that this young man is going to die being sick. So he says here, if there's any affection, if you have any concern, any affection, any sympathy or compassion, so affection is this deep emotional investment, compassion is this mercy or grace, if you have any any mercy for me, any any compassion for me, any any feelings towards me, he makes this statement, verse two: complete my joy. So, if there are any form, any of these, if you, if you have received any of these from Paul, so Paul is saying, look, if I, if I have done any of these for you, if we have any of these in common, if any of these things exist. It's great to know that Paul doesn't say, if you have perfect compassion, or perfect sympathy, or if you have perfect encouragement, or if, you, if you're perfect in these ways, then complete my joy. He doesn't tell you, you go get your soul right first, and then come join me. Isn't it great to know that we can encourage each other, lift each other up, and be uh, be beside each other in one spirit with our mess. With all our flaws, a big bag of worms. And we can delight in the glory of God. Isn't it great to know that you can join a community of faith that will love you, that will love you and encourage you, and it's an imperfect community that is striving towards the perfection of Jesus Christ. Isn't it great to know? He calls us out. He says if there's any, if you share any of these things in, in common. Now, go back and look at that list. Encouragement. We've got encouragement. We've got comfort from love. Encouragement in Christ. Comfort from love. We've got fellowship in the Spirit. And we've got affection and sympathy. These four things... Affection and sympathy being one, kind of jammed together. These four things are marks of Christian character. So what Paul is essentially saying is, look, if you are a believer at any level, 
whether you've just started or if you've been at this walk a long time, if you're a believer at any level, then, verse 2, complete my joy. I love that Paul doesn't beat around the bush and say, you might want to consider doing... There's no, there's no kind of lumpy excusing of the command or exhortation. He doesn't, he doesn't move the exhortation aside to make you feel more comfortable. He just says it outright. Complete my joy. I want to be filled with joy and I recognize that my joy is completed with the body of Christ growing and developing together. This is the nature of joy, that we would, we would come together, we, we derive joy and life from each other, from the Spirit of God engaging. I have to tell you, the, the greatest times that I have are when I'm sitting across a table with a believer. We're fellowshipping over a meal. That's why we have lunch almost every week, though we're still working on that. Just, that's an announcement for the end of service. The... We don't worry. We will. We will have lunch. We will have lunch again. All right. Um, it will happen. Praise the Lord. So now I lost my train of thought. Joy. Right. We have joy together, and I have to tell you that the greatest amount of joy that I've ever had is when I sit across the table from a believer and we delight in talking about the glory of God, about life, about mundane things, about great things about things that don't matter at all, and about things that matter forever. But there's this unity and spirit encouragement. There's this affection and sympathy for one another. There's this participation in the spirit together, all because we love the Lord. You have the ability to bring joy to others. Not just momentary joy, but complete and full joy. Paul is saying, complete my joy. Make it full. He's not saying, just you know, send me a letter, I'll feel better. He's saying, complete my joy. Make it full. You have the ability to complete my joy. Oh, sovereign grace, you have the ability to complete the joy of your pastor. And I would like to say you do. Just throwing that out there. You do. That's not I would like to say. That's I, I'm telling you, you complete my joy. Be clear. Um, you complete my joy. And, and Paul wants the Philippians to do this as well. You have the ability to complete someone's joy. So how does one complete joy? And he's going to tell you, by complete my joy, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So there are four things really there, even though in English it looks like three. Being of full accord and of one mind are two things um, there. So we, we see this straight out by being of one mind or by thinking the same way. We tend to, uh, English tends to make this sound like it's a state of being. It's not, it's an activity. Uh, by thinking the same way, by thinking the same. The word is frontos for mind. By thinking, it's a verb. By thinking the same way. 
So how do we do that? How do we, how do we conform our minds to think the same way? And I would tell you very simply, study the Bible. Um, at this church, we started, uh, this church started out of an inductive Bible study in a home. If you don't know what inductive Bible study is, it's an observation method of studying the Bible. That is, um, the way you study your Bible is observe, interpret, apply. Observe, interpret, apply. Inductive study method makes you observe, observe some more, observe a little more, observe more, observe again, then interpret, then observe, then interpret, then observe, then interpret, then observe, then interpret, then interpret, then apply. And the application comes after you have been saturated with the text. Now, the saturation of study conforms your mind. Studying the Word of God conforms your mind to thinking like the Word of God. So we urge all of our people, everybody who comes through the doors, to study your Bible. Read it. Study it. You know, the Bible never says of itself, read this, except to say, read it out loud. It says, eat it, says, study it, says, devour it, says, meditate on it, says, sleep on it, says, walk in it, says, uh, all these verbs that are used to describe the way that you study the Bible, not once does it say read, except for the instruction to the church. Dedicate yourself to the public reading of the Word of God. One time, and it's to the whole congregation. So we're supposed to read the Bible out loud. By the way, that's why we start and end our services with, with reading the Bible out loud. But the, you are instructed as a believer to devour the Word of God. And in devouring the Word of God, your mind will be conformed. And I can tell you, I have seen people who are diametrically opposed in thinking study the Bible together and come out with the same thinking. Maybe not on an issue, they might still, but their same pattern of thought, their same general pattern of thought is conformed, that they think the same Way, thinking the same way. Romans 12, verse 2 calls us to renew our minds. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, it tells you that the scripture is God's breath. And what are we supposed to be sharing to have the same mind? The breath. Breathing in and out the same thing. So if the scripture is God's breath and we want to conform our mind to Christ, then we must breathe his word in and out together. That's why we study through books here. It's why we encourage you to be in small group Bible study with other believers. It's why we encourage you to do your individual study at home as well and to study with your kids and your family and everybody you go to lunch with. Just study the Bible. Talk about the Word of God that your mind would be conformed to each other, that you would be breathing the same way. Second thing he says here, so we complete his joy by being of the same mind or uh, thinking the same way and having the same love. Again, this is loving the same way. Again, that's what this should translate as. Loving the same way. The self-sacrificing agape love should mark the Christian community. Indeed, Jesus says what? That they will know you by what? Your love. Jesus, that was a, I want to respond. Jesus said they will know you by your very good. So he, he calls them, says they will know you by your love. And then here Paul urges us to have the same love, to love the same way. Loving the same way. Self-sacrificing love should mark the community of faith. So we've got thinking the same way, loving the same way. And you've got by being in full accord. 
by being in full accord. This is, this is actually one long word. And it comes from the word suke, right? The same one that we talked about in chapter 1. This word meaning breathing out the same thing. Uh, the way that it should pro- I would probably translate this is to say, joined together in one soul. That the core of our being as believers is united so much so that when people get to know you, they go, hey, you're a lot like this other believer. And you go, yeah, well, that's because we're both believers. This is the way it's supposed to be. So joined together in one soul, you share the same breath out and in. You share the same breath. And then this last one, so we complete his joy by thinking the same way, loving the same way, by being joined in together in soul, and then he's got this and of one mind. Um, and really, that should read something like and one thing thinking, or thinking one thing. You lose it a little bit when you put the thinking in the right English place, but one thing thinking of. So thinking about this one thing, one purpose, one goal. Um, some versions, some older versions, the one I memorized when I was little, it, it says being single-minded. Being single-minded. That you have one thing that, that consumes your attention. One purpose or goal or direction that is the same. And what is that? We know that from earlier in the book. What is that? It's, it's the gospel. It's Jesus. That he's at the forefront of our thoughts and our being as a body. Remember, this is all plural. And it's plural in the context of a mixed bag of worms. We are a mixed bag of worms. Huh? Maybe. We're a mixed bag of worms, right? Like we're, we're mixed. I don't know if you don't like that analogy, a mixed box of chocolates, you know, whatever. We're all these different flavors and types of people all united together. And somehow, because of the glory of God, all these different things can unite to make one glorious picture of Jesus. You know, if you eat any of the ingredients for pizza by itself, it's not that good. You eat the flour by itself, not so good. You eat the seasoning by itself, it's too much. You eat the yeast by itself, you make yourself sick. You put them together, you bake the dough, and all of a sudden you have something delightful. Same goes with almost every recipe. I don't think I would put cardamom in anything on purpose. But because a recipe told me to, all of a sudden my bread tastes better. Right? So any individual ingredients might be kind of too much, too little, not enough. But when it's combined in Christ, and when we are made together in Christ, when we are knit together in soul, when we are joined together as a people, we find delight and we find that we are delighting in the world. Find that it tastes good and is enjoyable. Because we complete the joy by being single-minded. 
and having one purpose. Have you ever met, this is an application question, have you ever met an obsessed minority? Not a, not a person who is a minority, but an obsessed minority of people. They're obsessed. They, I, you, they've been called cults in the past. Right? It, I study a lot of church history. I really like church history. It's kind of my nerdy thing that I enjoy doing. Um, and and one, of the, one of the beautiful things about Christianity is that throughout the years, there have been small groups of Christians that have cropped up in different places, and there's one similar thing about them. The devout and holy Christians all through history are often scorned by a majority. And they are an obsessed minority of people. And they're obsessed with the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ and living that out. They're often called cults or they're called, um, they're called weird. I, I love when my church is referred to as weird, by the way. Um, you guys are strange. Yeah. We want to be. We want to be set apart from the world. We want to be different. We want people to look at us and go, I don't know why that works. We want them to. Are you a part of an obsessed minority because of Jesus? So how does this play out? This completing his joy, these things. He says, uh, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, and then he gives you some instructions. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. I love that phrase. Just do nothing from rivalry or conceit. You know, rivalry and conceit are the general disposition of every man. Every human. Sorry, all people. Rivalry and conceit are the general dispositions of every people. We compete with each other. Indeed, Cain and Abel at the very beginning. Cain takes an offering to God. Abel takes an offering to God. God likes Abel's offering, rejects Cain's offering. Cain doesn't go back and try to amend, you know, recognize whatever's wrong in his heart and confess to the Lord and say, what do I need to do? No, he kills his brother. Why? Rivalry. Conceit. I should be better. My offering's just as good. Rivalry. Conceit. This is, this is standard behavior. And Paul here calls us, do nothing from rivalry or vain conceit. Rivalry here being work for hire or ambition. Rivalry is out of ambition or, or a work for hire. And conceit is uh, the word kendoxia or empty glory. Glory that's of nothing. Rivalry or conceit. To advance one's own camp. So Paul calls us here. How do, you, how do you show that you're of the same mind? How does this play out? How does this look? Well, first, you don't do things out of rivalry to advance your own agenda or your own camp or your own opinions. You don't do things to make your own name great, your empty glory. You don't do things to do that. Instead, in humility, or rather in humility, here... Count others more significant than yourself. The word humility here is lowly esteem for oneself. Esteeming oneself lowly, to think less of yourself. Now, now, I want you to understand, humility is not thinking less of yourself in personhood. 
It's not thinking that you are that you don't have value. That's not humility. In fact, thinking of yourself as though you don't have value is actually a form of pride because you're putting yourself into this place where you're saying, I, me, my. Think, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. It's, it's putting others first and considering their needs, their position. It's esteeming others. It's not a reference to your personhood, but a reference to the glory or reality of who you are. You see, somebody who is humble recognizes who they are before Christ, who they are before God, who they are in relation to holy perfection. And then willfully accepts that God has changed their position before Him in Christ Jesus. Not by any work of their own, not by any work of their hand, but all because Jesus Christ lifted them up out of the miry pit and put them on the rock before God. And we stand clean before the Father, not because we have righteous robes that we have earned, but because we are wearing the robes of Jesus Christ and He has taken our filthy rags upon Himself. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. This is what humility is. It is one who recognizes who He is. When we recognize our actual glory before God, when we recognize our position before God, when we, when we see that, we will inevitably glorify Him and see His glory. When we recognize our lowly estate, we will see His glory. Another, another, applica- another implication of, of understanding our own position before the Lord is when we begin to see ourselves as in deep need of Jesus all the time, we will begin to think less about the failings of other people. You ever notice that when you when you really uh, begin to grasp some truths about how God has loved you and given you mercy and grace and you didn't deserve it and He's He's kind to you and loving to you, then when you suddenly encounter somebody who is a wretch and and awful, your thoughts about them are pity and love, not disdain and disgust. But instead, you go, man. I, I wish you could see the glory of God and know Him and see His forgiveness and delight. When we recognize our actual glory in the face of God, we will love each other. Then he says here that we are to esteem, in this, in this phrase, that you are to esteem, not think, do nothing out of rivalry or, or vain conceit, but esteem others or, uh, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. There's a great church his, history character, Francis of Assisi, who started, a, a, he started the Franciscan monks. Uh, they, he didn't call himself the Franciscan monks. That would be kind of a counter character. But he called them the Friars Minors, or the Lesser Brothers. And the, their goal was, I am the second man. That's what they would say. say I am second to everybody else. So if I meet somebody on the road, I'm second. Francis of Assisi took this so far that he only ever owned a robe with a rope. He, you know, these are the brown scratchy robe guys with a rope around it to hold it, to hold the belt, to hold it close. And he would walk around town and when he found somebody who didn't have a coat, 
he would frequently end up naked. Because he'd take off his clothes, and he'd hand them to the guy, and he'd walk off, and he'd pray, Lord, I need clothes. Can you provide for me? And inevitably, somebody would pretty quickly cover him, but he would, he would give his things away. He started the friars, minors, and this, this man, his, his walk of holiness is one that we still try to emulate today as he imitated Christ. So likewise, we are brothers minor, we are brothers and sisters minor. We are the second man here. And when we see our neighbor in need, we don't we answer the need when we can. Why? Because we're second. And we're esteeming them above ourselves. We're laying ourselves on the cross that they would be lifted up. This is the way of Christ. It is the way that we live. Then look at verse four here. Let each of you look not only to his own let, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that this phrase, this in Greek, this is weird. It says, uh, "I'm just going to try to say it in, in English, direct translation as best I can from what I studied." The, let each of you look themselves um, rather others. Let each of you look them to them. Let each of you look not to themselves, but rather others. Um, the interest there is put in there because we are English, we speak English, and it's hard to understand. Um, but in Greek, this is, don't look at yourself, look at others. That's the easiest way to put it. Don't look at yourself, but look at others. This, this call for us here is not focusing on what you want or need or have, but on the needs of other people. I have this phrase I say with my kids, why do you look at your neighbor's plate? Why do you look at your neighbor's plate? And the answer is to see if they have enough. Now you can imagine at the dinner table when that happens. Because I have served dinner and one kid has a slice of pizza slightly bigger than another. He got more than me. My kids learn very quickly not to, have, not to say those things or to figure out a more creative way to say them. They say, you know, they'll say something else, but... But once they say, he got more than me, I go, why do you look at your neighbor's plate? To see if they have enough. Does he have enough? Yes. What's the problem? He has enough. What's beautiful, what's amazing is when, when we really start to grasp that and we see that we have more than our neighbor and our neighbor doesn't have enough, we swap plates. I've seen that happen in my kids too. Where one of them sees the other one has more, that has less of something that they would like, and they'll reach across and switch plates. They think I don't see it. They think I don't notice, but I do. Indeed, this is Christianity. Why do we look at our neighbors? To see that they're taken care of. Not comparative, not in rivalry or vain conceit, not, not trying to make ourselves greater, but to see if they have enough. And if they have enough, great. And if they don't, maybe I can answer. Maybe I can help. See if they have enough. 
This is countercultural to us. In America, you don't look at your neighbor's things to see if they have enough. You look at your neighbor's things to compare their things to your things and see if you want something that they have. That's, that's why the world teaches us to look at our neighbor's things. But the reason the gospel teaches us to look at our neighbor's things is do they have enough? And am I equipped to help them get what they need? And if so, it is our calling to do so. And this is a weighty thing. It's not easy. It's not something that is done simply, but it's what Jesus does for us. We did not have enough. We were poor, desperate, sinful, and wicked, and needed our hearts to be changed, and we couldn't do it ourselves. And Jesus came down as a man. He came down God becoming man taking on all of our life, taking on all of our, all of our weight, all of our sin upon Himself, lives a perfect life, perfect on our behalf, that He could go to the cross and present Himself a living sacrifice for God, that God would take Him and, and sacrifice Him for your sins, that He would die, be buried for three days, rise again, that we would have life, because we didn't have enough. And Jesus gave us everything. How powerful and exactly what we do for our neighbors. It costs you something to do this. It costs you something to do this. We look at our neighbors' things to see if they have enough. And finally, why? That you would prove that you have this mind, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That you would be like Christ. And let's just read verses 6 through 11 in conclusion here. That we would ask the Lord, I want you just in this moment to make this your prayer, that you would ask the Lord to conform your heart to this description of Jesus. Let's just conclude by doing this together. Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.